Florida Medical Association, helping physicians practice medicine. Welcome to the Medicine Curated Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Stapleton. The 2021 legislative session kicks off next week in Tallahassee. Throughout the months of January and February, legislators have been meeting in Tallahassee for committee weeks. Our FMA team, led by Chris Clark and Jeff Scott, have been working hard educating lawmakers on the issues impacting physicians and patients in Florida. And today, we're pleased to have the two of them join us to discuss what to expect uh, during this year's legislative session. So we're gonna start off with Chris. Um, So Chris, tell us how the legislative process is a little different this year because of COVID. You know, what safety measures are being taken by the House and Senate? It's going to be a completely different session than anything we've ever seen before. Um, You know, just and we've experienced it through the the last uh, five committee weeks through January and February. Um, But, you know, both the House and Senate have um, have certain protocols. The Senate's are much more restrictive. Um, You know, there's no access to the Senate and to the Capitol side of the, you know, the Senate side of the Capitol. And um, and they're taking no testimony in committee. All testimony will be done down at the Leon County Civic Center where you pre-register and you basically go and testify via Zoom. Uh, we, a couple of doctors uh, show up and, and testify that way. So it's, it's, it seems to work. It's just a very interesting process versus being in a committee room, watching the process and watching how things are playing out. Um, the House is taking a little bit more lenient view. Uh, they're allowing you to, you to schedule meetings with representatives you know, to where you know, a set time you're allowed in to go to your meeting and then you have to leave. Committee hearings, they're going to have invited guests in the committee hearings. And you can apply to, to reserve slots in, in committees. There'll be limited seating so they can socially distance. Everybody's going to wear a mask and then they're going to do that. So it's two different ways of going about it. But there's going to be a great deal of complications that come from this in the way of being able to lobby on bills and get information to members in a timely fashion. So it's, it's going to be a challenge. And, uh, and we're trying to put together a plan to minimize the, 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 the difficulties and, and take advantage of some of the opportunities. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's more important than ever to have those relationships with with legislators to be able to call them up, and uh, probably more important this year than, than ever because you're not going to have access to them inside the building. So I assume everybody, all the legislators and staff, and everybody that's allowed inside the Capitol, they're all being tested every day, right? They're being tested the first of the week. They're not testing them every day. They're testing okay. them, you know, uh, coming in before they're allowed in the building to begin with. Okay. Again, while they're here, they're kind of coming and going. They're, you know, they're doing a lot of meetings outside the building at various places. We've had several members over to our downtown office. And again, you know, it's a large conference room, so we can social distance and wear a mask. And so we've been able to have some of those meetings. Um, and but again, once we get into session and, and, the, and the pace picks up, it, it will be much harder to to continue that. So so Jeff, uh Jeff Scott, our general counsel, uh is the lead on uh on some of our you know, real important issues that we're dealing with this year. And one of those is is medical liability protections for physicians who have treated COVID patients. I know there's two bills working their way through uh, the process. One is focused on business liability and the other is focused on healthcare liability and includes physicians, hospitals, and nursing homes. So Jeff, tell us about the healthcare liability bill and update us on the status of that legislation. Thanks, Tim. It's nice to do one of these uh podcast with you. It's my first one, so I appreciate the invitation. Well, you know, we saved the best for last, right? (laughs) We started laying the groundwork uh, for the liability legislation back in September when we drafted a proposal 
uh, a proposed bill that would protect physicians uh, who kept their practice open during the pandemic. You know, our goal was to ensure that physicians who, you know, they're provided reasonable pre uh, protections from liability in three main categories. The first would be for patients who received in-office care who then contracted COVID. The second would be from decisions to postpone or proceed with care in light of a government-imposed ban on elective procedures. And the third would be from cases in which care was impacted by a lack of resources, whether, you know, staffing, PPE, or uh, some other lack of supplies. And we worked closely with a number of groups, such as the, the Florida Hospital Association, Safety Nets, the dentists, uh, to come up with one bill that would cover both the insurance, uh, the business community, as well as the healthcare providers. And, you know, unfortunately, the, the legislature felt that the best approach was to have two separate bills. And they started with the business community first. SB 72, it, it moved quickly through its first committee while the House version, uh, HB 7, passed all of its committees and is uh, heading for second reading on the House floor. So, you know, business liability moved very quickly. The health care bills, uh, they took a lot longer to, uh, to develop. They were in drafting for quite a while. And the FMA used that time uh, to work behind the scenes with the House staff, with the members, with the governor's office to come up with, with a, uh, a good uh, product that, that really protected physicians. And uh, the final bills, they're out now and they differ in their details, but they both share the same underlying construct. Senate Bill 74, which is the Senate Healthcare Liability Bill, uh, would change the standard of proof in a COVID-19 related claim uh, against any healthcare provider, changing the current ordinary negligence standard to a gross negligence intentional misconduct standard, which is a higher burden uh, to, to, to prove. Uh, this bill, Senate Bill, would also confer immunity from liability for healthcare providers against a COVID-19 related claim if supplies, materials, equipment uh, were not readily available or were not available at a reasonable cost. Uh, the Senate bill, it's passed out of its uh, first committee and it's got two stops left before it heads to the Senate floor. The House bill, HB 7005, splits COVID-related claims against healthcare providers into two different silos. First, COVID-19 medical claims and then COVID-19 negligent claims. And if you have questions about the differences between these two, contact me directly. Uh, it would take me a little while to go through that here, so I'm not going to get into the details. Uh, basically, uh, a medical claim would be like a regular medical malpractice claim against a provider for the standard of care violation, whereas the negligence claim would be more like something that uh, you had a patient or, or a visitor come to your office and contract COVID uh, and sue you, not for your medical care that they provided, but just sue you because they caught something in your office. For COVID-19 related medical claims, and these are gonna be the ones that physicians will face most often, the bill provides that it's an affirmative defense to liability that the healthcare provider complied with all of the government issued health standards or guidances. And it further provides that a healthcare provider is not liable unless their alleged act or remission constitutes gross negligence, recklessness, or intentional misconduct. Close to what the Senate bill does, but just a little bit different. COVID-related 19 uh, negligence claims would be handled differently. These, were, these claims would require a physician affidavit. Uh, there would be a preliminary hearing involved. There would be an opportunity to cut the claim off uh, at, a, at an initial stage. And uh, a determination we made whether the healthcare provider complied, substantially complied in good faith with the directives. If they did, uh, the suit's cut off. 
uh, if there's, there, there would be immunity from suit. If they didn't, then uh, the case could, could move forward, but the plaintiff would have to prove gross negligence by clear and convincing evidence. And that's a higher standard than a, than a regular negligence claim. So, you know, the House bill, uh, it's been introduced uh, as a proposed committee bill by the Health and Human Services Committee. Uh, it's not yet received its committee references. And both of these bills, they have some, uh, some things that we'd like to change. And we've been in, uh, in touch with the staff to make several, uh, you know, small changes to, uh, to the bill language. And uh, hopefully we'll find something uh, that they can combine into one, one bill and pass, pass both chambers. Well, I know we've been working uh, as part of a coalition um, advocating uh, for these important measures. Tell me, what has been the reaction from the governor's office on, on these issues? Has the governor, uh, has he been supportive? The governor has uh, indicated that he is very supportive of both healthcare and business liability. Uh, and uh, all indications are if these bills, uh, you know, pass out of the chamber, that he will certainly sign them into law. We appreciate the support that he's given, and uh, and hopefully he'll weigh in uh, forcefully at the uh, near the end of session when these the two need to be combined uh, if they're two uh, to get out and be. Well, that's good to hear. So, Chris, uh, let me ask you this: you know, we've seen a, a big increase in the use of telemedicine during COVID. What are we doing this le- legislative session with regard to telemedicine? I'm sure that's an issue. It is. It is. It's, it's a huge issue. And, and, and we've got such a unique opportunity to push forward on it with, with what we've seen with telehealth, the use of it exploding last year because of the pandemic. But really, the, the other underlying piece that, that's driven it to being used so prevalently is, is the you know, Medicaid and Medicare were paying in-office rates um, for um, people to use telehealth. And, and the, the, the private insurance companies followed suit and were paying for in-office visits via telehealth. And so, again, that's driving a lot of the usage. And we're already starting to see them moving away from that of starting to pay uh, a little bit less or in some cases considerably less for, uh, for telehealth visits versus in-office visits. And truly, the patient ends up being the one that loses in that scenario. And so we've got a bill that we're working on that deals with payment parity and telehealth. Um, we're working with the, the other providers and, and the hospitals to try to get that bill moving this year. And it may be a little early for us to push forward with it, you know, coming on the heels of the pandemic. But I think we have to take advantage of this opportunity to move forward. But also, if the private insurance companies are not going to pay a fairer rate, we're going to see the use of it drop um, once life gets back to normal. So we feel like it's a, it's a good opportunity to push forward into it and to highlight that the providers should be paid the same for what they do via telehealth as they do in office. Because it basically takes about the same amount of time for a physician to do that service. It, again, it goes back to the patient's really the one that wins with the use yeah. of telehealth. Yeah, and patients like it. It seems to be uh, convenient. Most, most physicians' offices have uh, expanded their services to, to provide for telehealth visits. So, you know, it's a win-win for everybody. And I think that, uh, you know, hopefully the legislature sees the wisdom of enacting, you know, some of these, uh, making some of these changes permanent so that uh, telemedicine can continue to increase. So, you know, what are some of the other issues, other bills that we're working on to help our physicians proactively? Uh, I know we're proposing several insurance uh, reforms. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, we've got um, our our step therapy bill that would allow physicians to override some of the step therapy protocols that are put in place. Uh, It's a bill that we've we've run for a number of years. And, And again, whenever it gets a hearing, you know, very few people have ever will vote against the bill. 
uh, just because, again, they see that it's just a terrible practice. Uh, we've got a retroactive denial bill uh, that would that would make, you know, not allow the insurance companies to retroactively deny claims that they've already approved. Uh, we've got a prior authorization bill to get a little more transparency in the prior authorization process to help the physicians know what they need to do and how they need to go about doing it, but also force the insurance companies to come back with an answer so they can't just stall out the process. Uh, so we've got that. And then um, we've got another bill that's uh, dealing with access to stage four cancer drugs. It's a very narrowly focused step therapy type protocol, but we, we worked on that issue. And then also uh, there's been some clear bagging issues in, in the process of how the insurance companies are are having uh, chemo drugs uh, given to patients. And so that was another one that, we, that we've got in the hopper this year. And then another one that's not insurance related, but it's more pandemic related is access to PPE. And mm-hmm. working with the Department of Emergency Management to kind of codify some of their current practices and preparedness to have them, you know, research, you know, what storage of PPE equipment is available and also to kind of go ahead and start contracts um, to have those in place in a case of an emergency that the state can trigger to allow physicians and hospitals to access PPE. So that's another bill that we're working on this session. Great. Well, that's that's a lot. I know there's another issue, Jeff, that you're working on. Uh, last year, the legislature passed legislation regarding pelvic exams uh, that's proven to be uh, somewhat problematic. So what are the changes that we're seeking this year to really fix that issue? Any FMA member who even looks at a patient's pelvic area knows this uh, legislation from last year has posed a significant number of, of problems and an avalanche of, uh, of questions. The bill, which was Senate Bill 698 from last year, provides that a healthcare uh, provider, a medical student, or any other student receiving training as a healthcare provider may not perform a pelvic examination on a patient without the written consent of the patient or the patient's legal representative, executed specific to and expressly identifying the pelvic examination. What does that mean? Uh, the uproar that we received from this was immediate, and the questions that they generated, uh, you know, we, we haven't been able to answer. The list is, uh, is legion. What is a pelvic examination? Does, it, does this law apply to male patients? Does it apply to diagnostic procedures such as ultrasounds? Does it apply to procedures such as colonoscopies that touch the pelvic area? Does it apply to surgeries on the pelvic area? Does it apply to a visual examination in which the uh, pelvic area is not physically touched? Uh, does it apply when you have to touch the pelvic area to do a procedure on a non-pelvic area? Uh, the, the questions you know, were, uh, were numerous. And uh, we, we received a little bit of guidance from the Board of Medicine in a petition for declaratory statement uh, that we filed. Uh, that's non-binding. It just gives you a rough guidance of how the board is going to interpret that. Uh, the Department of Health didn't give us uh, much of, uh, of any uh, guidance on how to interpret these. So what we did was uh, over the summer, we worked with uh, groups to come up with legislation that would fix the problems, answer all the questions. And uh, fortunately, uh, this uh, last year's bill sponsors have been cooperative, and they've agreed to file glitch legislation, uh, Senate Bill 716 and House Bill 361, to fix these problems. And this bill would uh, change the definition of pelvic examination to specifically target an examination of the organs of the female internal reproductive system and uh, require consent only from an anesthetized or unconscious patient. And that takes care of a whole lot of problems. Doesn't apply to male patients. Uh, you don't have uh, the situation where, you know, I'm going to check for diaper rash. Do I have to, to get consent there? 
Uh, it's on an anesthetized or unconscious patient only. It uh, significantly narrows the scope of the uh, legislation. And uh, the bill would also exempt from the consent requirement a pelvic exam that's necessary for the provision of emergency services and care and a pelvic exam that's indicated uh, in the standard of care for a procedure to which consent has already been given. So that's going to cut down on a lot of the, uh, the questions as well, as well as the instances in which you've got to get this consent. And uh, furthermore, the bill would provide that written consent is, uh, it may be obtained as a part of a general consent form, uh, and that uh, uh, one written consent may be used to authorize multiple healthcare uh, providers or students to perform the exam. So uh, those are the major changes. There are a few others that I know some folks would like to have, and uh, we're going to work on seeing if we can get those included in the final product. Well, that's great. Thanks for that update, Jeff. I know, um, you know, oftentimes there are measures that, that, that pass the legislature that might be well-meaning, but, um, you know, unless you're a physician, uh, you don't understand the impact that that has on the practice of medicine. And fortunately, we we had a number of physicians contact us. We were able to get in touch with uh, the bill sponsors. Unfortunately, we couldn't change uh, what passed last year, but we're working to to get it fixed this year. And you know, again, that's just an example of you know the value of staying engaged in the process, having physicians uh, working with us, um, really, you know, uh, letting legislators and policymakers know how these things affect you know, real life uh, practice of medicine. So uh, thank you for your work on that. Now, Chris, um, you know, every year there are always a, a plethora of bills that uh, seek to expand scope of practice for non-physicians, essentially allowing uh, mid-level healthcare professionals to practice medicine without going to medical school or even completing residency training. And we deal with these every year. You know, last year, some, some of those got some traction. And we spend a great deal of political capital every year fighting these measures. So, you know, what scope of practice issues um, and bills are there uh, this year that we're actively opposing? And I know there's a bunch of them. So kind of if you could run down the list of scope of practice issues that, that the FMA is, uh, is opposed to this year. Sure, sure. Yeah, it, it's an issue that just is playing whack-a-mole and it comes back every year. But uh, this year, uh, there's an APRN autonomous practice bill that basically would allow the APRNs to specialize in dermatology, ENT. You know, they would basically be able to, to, to pick their specialty and practice autonomously without any supervision uh, from, a, from a physician. And so it's, it's a bill that we've got major problems with. And we're working with a lot of the specialty societies to bottle that one up and kind of beat it back. Does that include uh, uh, nurse anesthetists as well? Yes, it includes all specialties, every single one of them. If, if that's what the nurse is trained in, they can practice autonomously in that, in that specialty. How do you define training in that, in that instance? I mean, someone just says, hey, I'm a, I specialize in uh, dermatology, and so I'm a nurse dermatologist. Is that, is that how it's defined under this bill? Yes, it actually piggybacks on the independent practice bill that passed last year, where basically that bill limited it to only primary care. Uh, this removes that limitation to primary care. So it has, I think, 1,200 or 1,600 hours of, of, of additional training, but, but really very little more than, than what they required last year in the independent practice bill. So it, it's a terrible bill. And, and like I said, we, we're, we're engaged with several of the specialties working on that one. And, and, and again, the good news is, is it's got everybody working together against it versus just having one or two specialties engaged in fighting it. 
Mm-hmm. What else? What other scope issues? Another bill, um, last year, the physician assistants were taken out of the independent practice bill. There's a bill this year that would include them into it. And, and, and again, and, and, you know, there, there was a lot of arguments made about the lack of training for physician assistants and why they were taken out of the bill last year. So I'm hoping we're going to work on that and pick up where that left off last year and making sure that we can stop this bill. So that would allow physician assistants, uh, and I, you know, their title is physician assistants. So, you know, that title is pretty self-descriptive. They're there to work with and assist physicians. This would allow them to practice without uh, a physician. So you'd have physician assistants, they would be able to function as physicians. Autonomous physician assistants. Interesting. I don't, I don't know how that works, but yeah, that, that's what they're doing. So, <laughs> so that's one that we're going to be working against this year. Another really egregious bill is an optometry bill that would basically allow optometrists to become fully practicing ophthalmologists. It allows them LASIK surgery, full prescribing authority, and it gives them all everything that they need to basically practice ophthalmology without near the training. You know, I think only three other states allow this. Um, you know, there's some good studies that show that in the states that allow it, where the optometrists have done some procedures, that they've had to spend a lot of money to kind of come back in and fix some of those. So, so again, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty scary stuff. And even if you look at like Oklahoma, a state that allows this, it's only a 14-hour training course that the optometrist has to take before they can be a fully practicing ophthalmologist. Uh, so this, this one is, is a really bad bill. And we're working with the, uh, the Florida Society of Ophthalmology to, uh, to, to stop this bill. Uh, but again, it, it's a pretty egregious bill. And then uh, the last, well, not, not the last one, but the other, another big one that we're working on is a bill that would allow psychologists prescribing authority. And uh, this is one we're working with a psychiatrist to, to stop this bill. And this is just uh, just very, this is egregious also. When you say prescribing authority, it would allow them to like prescribe psychotropic drugs? Is that? Uh... Everything, everything. So that, that, that's another one that we've got there. And then there's a couple other issues uh, with the audiologist where they're trying to, to, to sneak a little scope expansion through in a bill. And so we're just having to watch and track all of those bills to see where anything pops up. All right. Well, that's a, that's a lot. Um, I think, uh, you know, clearly um, the fact that, that the FMA is there in Tallahassee, uh, keeping an eye on all this, working, educating lawmakers every day on, on uh, the dangers of, of scope of practice expansion. Um, you know, hopefully that is having an impact. Obviously, um, you know, uh, what's the point in going to medical school if you can just practice medicine uh, without having uh, residency training or, or having to uh, do all the things that, that physicians do? Um, certainly that's bad for patients. We know that. Um, and uh, I appreciate the work that you guys are doing and educating uh, lawmakers on those issues. And, and hopefully, um, you know, some of the proactive uh, measures that, that we're pushing, we can see those move along. Uh, obviously, uh, the liability uh, issues are important to physicians, uh, changes to telemedicine, and anything we can do to improve the practice environment for physicians relative to, you know, the hassle factor and dealing with insurance companies. That's all very important. So uh, I want to thank you guys for joining me today. Uh, just so our members know, we'll be at, we'll be uh, uh, updating you um, throughout the legislative session, probably on a weekly basis. Uh, but certainly, uh, as things move along, we'll be uh, providing updates uh, to you. So so stay tuned. 
And um, again, guys, uh, you know, rest up, take your vitamins this week, uh, because I know the beginning of session next week, uh, you're going to be working long days and long hours on behalf of our members. And, uh, you know, we really appreciate what you do. Thanks, Steve. Absolutely. All right. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Florida Medical Association, helping physicians practice medicine.